There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So this is the mobility leg of fire and maneuver. You should only be flying when people aren't shooting at you. Now, having said all of that for SOCOM, we built a helmet-steered sidearm so you can actually lay down covering fire whilst you're flying just by looking at the target. Welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. Richard Browning has quickly become a TikTok sensation following the videos of him flying around like Iron Man in his homemade jet suit. Browning has realized the boyhood dream of being able to fly by inventing a suit that allows him to do just that. If you've ever dreamt about flying or had thoughts about an invention, you're about to hear how to get started. I hope you enjoy the episode. A massive thank you to you if you've already supported the podcast by grabbing yourself some Athletic Greens. I'll put the link in the synopsis for this episode too, so just scroll down, click the link and sort your health out. I'm loving it. Honestly, Like I hope they sponsor the podcast forever. Every morning I wake up and it's the first thing I do with one scoop of AG1 by Athletic Greens. You're absorbing 75 quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, probiotics and aptogens to help you start your day right. And it's perfect for someone like me because even when I'm having a lazy day or my routine is messed up with traveling, I just bang back some AG1 by Athletic Greens and I know that I'm getting everything that I've always been told I needed to be getting into my diet. And to make things easy, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Richard Browning, thanks for coming on the show, mate. My pleasure. Let's let's back it up a bit because it's not like you just fell into aeronautical engineering or anything like that. It's it's on both sides of your family. It's in your genes, isn't it? Yeah, it sort of only dawned on me when I was a few years into this journey, actually, uh, when I got rid of the repeated question as to where this idea came from. And yeah, my, my late father was an aeronautical engineer and maverick creator and designer. Um, his father was a wartime aviator and civil pilot after that. And uh, my other grandfather, Sir Basil Blackwell, was former chairman, chief executive of Westland Helicopters in the UK. You know, the, the the seeking and the links and things like that, quite well-known helicopters all came out of that facility. So yeah, I sort of grew up around, you know, jet engine chaps, swash plates, you know, tail rotor structures, you know, advancing, retarding helicopter rotor, uh, you know, dynamics and things like that. I don't know. I just sort of grew up around that without really thinking it was unusual. So I've had this residual knowledge knocking around, which has ended up being quite helpful for this journey. When you, when you first started on this project, you were working as an oil trader, though, weren't you? It's not like you are an, an aeronautical engineer. Like your your actual day job was oil trading or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was. I, I, I mean, in summary, I did go to university to study engineering. And, and very sadly, after one semester, just got fed up with doing maths stuck in a lecture theater. And for, for me, engineering is about building and making and testing things. And mm. I just got fed up with it. I had a place to join the British military at the time. And thought, you know what, I need a degree and I like science. So why don't I just shift to a science degree that looks more interesting and tangible? And actually, weirdly, it was exploration geology. So kind of using geology to find stuff. 
that got me into BP, but I then also discovered that the technical side of that was maybe not as fast paced and dynamic as I was hoping. So I discovered uh, the trading division, which were all very young people wearing colorful shirts, earning lots of money, making quick decisions. So I sort of gravitated towards that in summary. And yeah, spent 16 years in, in that kind of arena. And so there's the, there's the crossover between doing that and then tinkering at home in the garage. But you were you were reluctant to sort of give up that day job because of what happened to your father, weren't you? Yeah, so I'm a sort of split personality. You know, I, I from losing my father in related to a failed business venture, um, I had this huge chip on my shoulder about not entertaining the same risk you know, risk to family, risk to livelihood that, that comes with being an entrepreneur and setting up your own business. Uh, so I gravitated towards, you know, the relative safe confines of a big corporate, although I'd found the most crazy part of it. Um, uh, and and yet I never lost that desire to challenge and question and, you know, uh, go look over the horizon. And weirdly, the out, the the manifesto, manifestation of that desire really came out in the sports I used to pursue. So I got into ultramarathon running and uh, calisthenics training, you know, all the sort of weird gym flags and muscle ups and stuff like that. Um, and also joined the Royal Marines Reserve as well, alongside my day job. You know, I was, I was sort of constantly self-flagellating in the world of physical challenges because that was kind of my safe zone. The worst is it just hurts. You know, it's not going to threaten the mortgage. It's just going to, you know, it's going to get muddy, cold, wet and tired. Um, so it took me a long time to build up the confidence and experience and yeah, so it's courage to go and take that same plunge I'd witnessed my father take, uh, but with hopefully more positive consequences. Because it is quite a big step, not just to go into being an entrepreneur. Like you're talking about trying to turn yourself into a real life Iron Man. Like it's bonkers. <laughs> well, it wasn't. That was absolutely not the ambition. So um, you know, it's great that it looks like that, and you know, it, to, by some measures it is the closest parallel in a way to what we do. And I've learned, I've spent enough time around America to kind of absorb the idea that actually science fiction is a rich source of inspiration where you don't care about money or physics. And it's not just childish comic books. It does represent pure human desire and ambition. You know, a lot of, you know, a mobile phone or a lot of technology we use today, take for granted, was aspirational nonsense you know, 30, 40 years ago. And we've just gone and said, no, but I really would like a box I can warm food in and I don't care how it works. I just want to press a button and 30 seconds later it'd be warm. But that's, that's witchcraft, stupid, never going to work. Well, you know, somebody worked out how to do it. So actually, if you look at a science fiction character, you know, then we're gradually nudging closer to something that allows you within a few seconds to just take off, land, shut down, talk again, do something and take back off again. You know, so, um, but anyway, sorry, that, that the ambition was not to build an island suit. But yes, I... I liked the idea of tackling something that nicely married together human capability, you know, human balance, human physicality, and that age-old desire of human flight, which has fascinated people since we, I guess, walked out of a cave and thought the birds are doing a pretty cool job. It's interesting to see how you invented this thing because it's not like you had a you drew it all up from scratch, right? You started looking at things, even like old fishing rods for bits and pieces and and trying to kind of use what's already there or what's already invented to try and build what you wanted to build. Yeah, massively. So, I mean, a, a great example is um, child backpack kind of carriers. So, you know, you take your, your child on a hike in the, you know, out in the, in the wilderness, you can get those purpose-built rucksacks you put a kid in or a toddler and you can carry them on your back. We used to, for the first couple of years, use those, we got through probably 20 of them. 
we used to use them all the time because somebody has already done the hard work to build a comfortable backpack structure that can take about the weight, it turns out, of some fuel and a jet engine, similar to the weight of a toddler. Uh, so why bother reinventing the wheel? Why bother going and reinventing all the clever, lightweight padding structure and everything? Obviously, we had a climbing harness structure built through it to take the load of the lift. But why not repurpose what's already there? Because you've got a hard enough job turning a ludicrous idea into something you can go and test without this misguided idea that you sit there behind a design board, you know, a CAD structure, a CAD, CAD machine, and design from scratch your perfect vision. And then go and try and get somebody to build that thing and then go and test it. That's what often people kind of come up to me and say, like, you know, when did you test the first flight suit? Were you scared? And just as, That belies a complete lack of understanding of how these things really work. The first iteration was bench testing an engine. Then you eventually get confident you know how to turn it off and manage the power and eventually go to the crazy step of putting it on your arm, very clear on how to turn the damn thing off if something weird went wrong. But actually, you know, you, you gradually layer into eventually in the one on two arms and then you work out where to put the fuel. And do you know what I mean? It's an iterative process of usually little fails constantly, which takes you how, what not to do and every now and then uncover an opportunity to make it better or advance. Um, so to, to fuel that journey as cheaply and as fast as possible, repurpose all that we still do it. Um, if we can find something off Amazon or eBay that we can go and take apart that will allow us to the same afternoon test the principle, teach us the lesson and allow us to pivot or advance the idea, then why not? You know, you don't go spend 50 grand and wait six months for some custom built part. Uh, only do that once you're absolutely sure it really delivers what you want. There was an interesting story about you contacting the medical industry because you were getting air blockages in your in your fuel lines. Yeah, so a really stupid um, problem in the early days. Yes, if you have a normal normal solid fuel tank, as you as you kind of jump around, and we used to do little hops. You haven't you don't have enough power, let's say, deliberately to to take off, so you always know you're going to come down again. So you just do little bunny hops, and and each time it gives you. A, it's kind of how we teach people nowadays. You know, some of our 500 clients we've had, but you're on a tether this time, unlike I didn't have a tether. Um, and you do lots of little bunny hops and it gives you a moment in the air where you think, oh, I sort of came down where I was expecting. Or on the other hand, oh, I've rotated whilst I was in the air a few degrees and I'm clearly not very balanced. You know, it gives you little bites of the cherry in terms of feeling balanced. Problem is when you're doing that is you're sloshing the fuel around. And if you've got a fixed fuel tank, there's a chance that a wave of fuel kind of, you know, sends some bubbles down into the fuel lines. And, and you know, you can guess what happens if those engines suck in air bubbles, you know, they don't produce as much power and potentially can even stall. And so a good, you know, three or four fails, and again, from like a foot above the ground on a farmyard, um, were from sloshy bubble problems. And so, uh, yeah, a good example of the kind of thinking we apply, you know, where else has somebody solved that problem? Well, guess what? If you get bubbles in your intravenous line as a patient in a hospital, uh, it's even worse than falling a foot onto a farmyard. So uh, somebody had worked out that you can build optical bubble sensors. So uh, yeah, I talked to a company, they love what we were doing and they sent me some bubble sensors. We built them into the electronics. And a little light would come on in your line of sight if it sensed the bubble. And it gave you about a second or two warning before that bubble would make its way to the engine. So it gave you a chance to quickly, you know, have your feet back on the ground. So it's not something we use nowadays. We've got lots of other solutions nowadays. But, um, yeah, it's a good example of repurposing somebody else's great idea. Brilliant. And when you when you actually – let's talk about the actual jets that you've got because originally, like, you bought those for, like, what, four grand as well from somewhere, didn't you? The original experimental engines, yeah, they were around that kind of scale, yeah, of cost. And, you know, you buy one and get to know how to use it and buy two and realize you can feel a bit lighter. And But you gradually layer into needing more and more of them, not only to generate the required power, but also to survive the fact that you keep breaking them, which was a great frustration in the early days. And all of this was alongside, you know, commuting 
um, from Wiltshire into into Canary Wharf every day. You know, I used to leave it just after five o'clock in the morning and get home sort of eight o'clock at night. And uh, I'd still found time in the late evenings and, you know, weekends and things to advance the next prototype to go and drag my family out to the farmyard and test it. So that iterative process, um, yeah, whilst also spending increasing amounts of money on these engines was, was yeah, it was starting to create a question in my mind whether I was going down the same route as my, <laughs> I'd watched my father go in terms of, you know, spending money on something that's not, not that sure of ever seeing a return. What what is the power like comparable to like what the the those jet engines that you first get like what are they what what kind of power would they be similar to? Yeah, so the latest suits we're flying at the moment, uh, they're quite a lot more powerful than the early days ones. Uh, you know, we've just been flying up mountains, flying around Florida with the SOCOM guys and doing all sorts of things. Um, th- those suits, they produce about 160 kilos of thrust, so that's what 350 pounds of thrust, something like that, roughly. Um, which if you do a very crude fudge between thrust and horsepower, which any physicians will hate. Um, it comes up to about fifteen hundred horsepower. So if you've got a, you've got a twenty uh, unfueled. You've got a twenty-three kilo box on your back with, um, well, including the arm engines, which is more powerful than a Veyron. When I um, a couple of years ago, I bought a drone, and you can't fly that anywhere in London. I quickly worked that out. It's yeah. like you can't. Fly, it's like what a waste of money. Were you, you've talked about your testing in a farmyard. Like, how did that come about? Like, how did you find somewhere to actually test this thing? Because that that's a problem in itself. Yeah, it became pretty obvious. You know, I say I, I used to run the engine in the garage. I, I did it four or five times, and my wife then kind of called time on that because they are damn loud. And uh, uh, we didn't get any complaints, but I think if I carried on, we probably would have uh, not enamored ourselves to our neighbours here. So yeah, I I actually just used Google Earth, you know, Google Maps to look around, look for large areas of open expanse. You know, we live on the edge of the countryside here. Um, realized farmyards are pretty remote. Uh, wanted an area of concrete because yeah, whilst it's going to hurt falling on it, um, it's relatively clean and doesn't you know. Uh, at th- th- that time, we were looking and, and I did do the very first flight with engines on the back of my legs. And the problem with that is they they dig a hole in anything that isn't concrete. Um, so you needed an area of relatively clean, hard standing. And I just drove around with a map on my passenger seat and a little jet engine sitting on that same seat. Um, and I drove around and just pulled into various farmyards. And, you know, whenever I found somebody that looked like they were up for a question, I'd say, look, I've got a crazy idea. Do you mind if I run a jet engine in your farmyard? And it's such a bizarrely British question that actually it's right out the other end of suspicious. It's so bizarre that the answer in every case was, well, that's mad. Yeah. <laughs> sure um and so in the end yeah we, we we were very grateful to a farm near here um that for about four years you know only in the last couple of years or so if we stopped using it um we just did endless testing and development and eventually with training rigs and tether systems and raised stages and all sorts but uh, yeah that was instrumental to be able to actually test these things i bet you got some injuries early on in those days though didn't you do you know what um six years into this me and my entire team and all our clients no one's ever and this sounds worse than it is. No one's ever sustained a permanent injury. And that sounds like, therefore, there's been loads of other injuries. And I mean that in the sense of grazing your knee or bruising your elbow doesn't, you know, it goes away after a couple of weeks. Genuinely, that's the worst we've had. I remember bruising my heel a bit on one failure event. I remember I've, you know, ended up with a sore knees sometimes from from falling over on things. But no, really? and it's because we, yeah, no, crazy enough. It sounds, sounds ridiculous, doesn't yeah. it? Um, I mean, you know, and actually one of my team fell in the water from quite high up and was fine. And we have an attitude of constantly flying in a manner where we would reluctantly accept a failure. Whilst this system is extremely reliable, you can't engineer your way around every single problem. Boeing, Airbus, you know, everybody like that knows that. Um, We don't glide. We're not high enough for a parachute. 
Um, we have, have no desire to go high enough for a parachute. And so therefore we terrain hug because we can vector thrust control. You know, you can you can adjust the downward force very finely and precisely by moving your hands. Um, as a result, you can skim the ground and, and especially flying over water or grass, you know, you can keep it keep the risk profile to that of an enthusiastic mountain biking outing. With flying a jet suit, your destiny is entirely in your hands. It can't literally in your hands. It can't fail upwards. If all the engines went mad, and this never happened, but if they all went mad, you just flare them out, just point them out to the side and you land instantly. So you're always in control of that machine. There's nothing, there's no computer that can suddenly take you up or shoot you off like a firewater rocket or flip you upside down or any of that. Yes, you can get one or more engines failing or a fuel contamination problem or a massive electrical failure you've never seen before. But you're deciding at every moment how high, how fast and over what surface you fly. Injuries will happen, but they happen in everyday life. And so far, six years and literally tens of thousands of flights, we've never had anything more than those grazes and bumps. It must be hard on the arms. It must be like almost like doing dips if you were in the gym. No, because people miss the rear engine. So there's, there's, it's a three-legged camera tripod. You've got ah, thrust on your thrust on. No, no, no one ever spots that rear engine. If you, if you look closely at any of the social media stuff, and it's not like I'm trying to hide it, there's a big box on your back with 20 <laughs> liters of fuel in it. It's not subtle. But there's a rear engine in there, and that is one of your legs of your tripod. So that pitches you forward a bit, but lifting you by a lot. Then you've got thrust on each arm. You've got a little engine either side of each arm, but the net result feels just like you're leaning on the grip. But because the rear engine is doing so much work, it is simply like leaning lazily with straight arms on your bathroom sink or kitchen worktop. If you, if you do that and stand on your bathroom scales at the same time and lean forward with roughly straight arms until only one third of your weight is registering on those bathroom scales, it feels like that. And you can do that if you really had to pretty much all day. I mean, not all day. You could do that for half an hour without your palms your hands would start to get fizzy i guess after a while but um but it's no it's really not difficult the only times it gets difficult if you're carrying a lot of weight like weapons or lots of fuel and you're flying very fast into a very gusty wind and then you find your shoulders are doing lots of micro adjustments without you knowing and that starts to get fatiguing but the benefits of having you at the controls of it are so great that we just i mean lots of people say actuated arms and exoskeletons all this rubbish Problem is, it's very complicated, very heavy, very expensive, and will kill you if it goes wrong. So, pretty good reason why you don't want to be like actuating the handlebars on a bicycle. I mean, no one thinks about doing that because it's just not necessary. Like, how actually far can the jetpack go at the moment? The ones we fly most of the time at the moment, if you really pushed it, can do five minutes. Um, in that five minutes, I mean, make the maths really easy. Over water, you can sit at sixty miles an hour. We've done eighty-five, but I mean, sit at sixty, which is, is that's pretty rapid. Um, and you, you can just about convince yourself that coming off a jet ski at sixty miles an hour is not going to kill you, but could knock you out. But then you float the right way up with our gear. So, <laughs> you know, I'm already a little hesitant to spending much time doing that, but you can if you need to. And the maths is very easy. So there's five miles if you really wanted to, but I wouldn't do that over ground let's make it safer and go 60 kilometers an hour so then again the math is easy so you could go you know five kilometers realistically for nearly every military search and rescue industrial and entertainment thing we've done and we've done over 200 exercises in 36 countries now nearly every single event is under three minutes because you can be so quick so nimble so precise i'm flying up that mountain that went on social media recently it's done nearly three million views on youtube now that was 1.2 miles horizontally 2200 feet up in fog and i did it in three and a half minutes landed with so much fuel it was a pain to walk downwards to be honest that's got to open the doors for a mountain rescue and that kind of thing right well that, that was the combination of the latest mountain rescue exercises there's a big sponsor orsted is a big danish wind turbine company they put in quite a lot of money to accelerate our work with the great north air ambulance 
um, who reached out over a year ago and said, oh, actually, where we can't land the helicopter, where we can't land it because of fog or there's nowhere to land it, they don't do fast roping stuff, we have to walk up these mountains. And sometimes, in fact, I was just on a call with them earlier today and they had an incident on Scarfell where it took them two and a half hours to get to the patient. Now, if they're, they've had a, you know, a cardiac event or they've got breathing difficulties or they've fallen and they've got an open wound and they're losing blood, and there's quite a lot of these, two and a half hours ain't very satisfactory. And there are significant numbers of people who don't make it from these call-outs. Well, I've just given you the headline. We we got out of the support vehicle where the vehicle can't go any further. The ground team walked and it took them an hour and 20 minutes and I did it in three and a half. I mean, it's nuts. Mm-hmm. Genuinely, I was really impressed with what we managed to do there. And so that is the difference between life or death in that scenario. And also for the military, it has obvious application because you might not be going to save a, an OAP with a heart condition. You might be going and doing something more more difficult yeah we'll talk about the military stuff soon but also like beating traffic with a paramedic like a first responder getting in and beating traffic to get to someone where an ambulance might take a while yeah so if you think of a paramedic on a motorbike cutting through the traffic that's probably the best analogy for people who struggle with like oh my god i can't imagine this what do you do do you sling the patient under the jet suit and all this kind of stuff no it is that first responder with minimal equipment to buy you that critical kind of golden hour of survival the only hesitation um, in an urban environment is you guess you can fly over cars and people and whatever you could do if you're going to save somebody's life but we never we never do because again it doesn't pass my safety test that you know if in the unlikely event you had a problem i don't want to be landing on people and i don't really want to be landing on their cars either but that urban response scenario is actually very powerful for the um sort of urban swat team folks so if you've got a you know um, uh, like a mumbai style terror attack with multiple gunmen running through streets you know causing all sorts of atrocities the police have got a nightmare because they've got slightly laggy old information about where the bad guys are. They can't use helicopters through the streets. They can't run through the streets. They can't get vehicles through the streets and they really struggle to respond. Well, now we can. And, and in that circumstance, I think it's acceptable to fly over vehicles and people to try and you know, bring an end to the carnage those kind of circumstances usually entail. How far, how long until like, that's actually a thing and that's happening? Yeah, interestingly, so we've had the most progress with the military and with search and rescue We've done a couple of police scenarios, the sort of mainstream public police kind of thing. If I'm really blunt, I don't think many people are that excited about seeing flying police in expensive jet suits. They kind of think more bobbies on the beat, less glamorous technology, please. It's more with their tactical arm and the SWAT team people, which is stuff that takes place behind closed doors. The, the public won't see this being practiced. They will then one day see it actually hopefully saving people's lives in a real life situation because it's very closely allied to the special forces work we do rather than being a bobby on the beat with air mobility. <laughs> that would look a little bit like we were forking out a bit too much cash for something quite extravagant. How much does a suit cost? Yeah, so we don't really sell them to the public. We've had a couple of people that have twisted our arms so badly that in the end we we did build them a suit each, but we insisted on keeping it on our premises. You know, some sitting behind me here, and it's about four hundred fifty thousand dollars. So what, three hundred forty thousand pounds, that kind of thing. And you only we only build them once you've trained with us. Um, and even then, as I say, we keep the equipment. And the idea is you go and safely race over water with us. You see, there's a challenge that a we're very busy with lots of other very big kind of professional things and just building jet suits for rich people that possibly could abuse them is a potential distraction but also it's a reputational risk there are examples of technology that had lots of promise and one person screwed up once i mean we've literally done 200 events without blemish we screw up one event where somebody just does something silly or dangerous and everybody will remember that and nobody will want to go and deal with us and everybody will think we are running fast and loose from the safety perspective so 
you know, there is a risk that some rich person gets slightly too drunk, goes and flies it, you know, up to some high rise building, makes a mistake and heaven forbid kills themselves or somebody else. And then it's all my personal fault or my company and we get grounded in every sense. We've got an amazing relationship with the CAA, the FAA, the Military Aviation Authority. They, when they look under the surface, you know, I've given you some of the insights into how we can keep this safer, uh, you know, all very safe. Um, I was going to say how we can keep this less controlled than drones. You mentioned about not being able to fly drones in London. We've flown in London several times for events. I've flown in downtown Singapore. I mean, you you literally can't do anything. Uh, and yet we're fine because of the way we can describe in our very large display description document how actually this doesn't pose a risk to people, public, passengers, or anything. All of that has come through not being frivolous with how we let people use this. You've been able to develop at quite a high speed. How big now is like is 3D printing? Because you, you, you did start buying in parts that were already existed, already invented, and now you're now you're 3D printing, aren't you? Uh, yeah, 3D printing has just been a massive catalyst to what we do. And I mean, you know, in nearly every industry it's become that. It runs perfectly parallel with our philosophy of have an idea, now cad it up. And then either printed on one of our machines or, you know, one of them sitting behind me here um, or on a, an industrial machine, which costs a bit more money. But, you know, 10 days later, how comes your entire backpack structure that looks exactly as the CAD file did? And you go for the test flight that afternoon. You come up with half a dozen things which you change. My CAD designer, one of my main CAD designers will then probably spend two days making all the changes, submit it for printing. And, a, you know, another week, 10 days later, how comes the next one? You imagine if you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Injection molding those, right? You know, it's $100,000 a pop. They cost very little when you're then producing out of them, but you probably want to change your mind again with the design. So this has allowed us, whether it's metal, you know, aluminum, steel, titanium, et cetera, or polypropylene or nylon, it allows us to iterate so ridiculously quickly. Um, you know, we've literally got hundreds of prototype parts 3D printed around here. And uh, that's another reason why this room, this building here, doesn't need to be massive because actually somebody else does all the crazy, you know, manufacture. We get it here, we assemble it, go test it and then modify it and learn all the lessons here. Yeah, it's crazy because it wasn't long ago you were, um, didn't you have your, you could only fly for two minutes and you could, you had your, you had your wife's phone in your, in your boot or something. Didn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yes, yeah, yeah, it was kind of fun looking back at these anecdotes in the uh, Taking on Gravity book you know, you're referring to. So, yeah, flight time, you know, you, you, lots of people would think about this, you, know, you need some sort of fuel gauge, all that sort of stuff. Problem with the fuel gauge is, you know, it relies on you knowing what you put in in the first place. So, actually, you can spoof yourself with that if you're not careful. So, better just to put in what you know is a, you know, two and a half minutes fuel load of flight time and then have something that warns you after two minutes that you really need to be getting on the ground. So yes, one of the solutions for a period was a vibrating iPhone tucked into your sock. 
um, as just a really simple backup. Um, only, only marginally more sophisticated than having a friendly person in the audience from the team who would be looking at the time and would just gently put a hand up when you get to that two minute mark and you'd see them in the crowd and you think, okay, I'll make it, you know, make a nice planned landing around now. Uh, so yeah, it's funny what, what doing live events often for live TV or huge audiences often unpacked out of two check-in suitcases, you know, an hour beforehand, sometimes at the other side of the world. It's amazing what that experience over five years teaches you in terms of robustness and simplicity of operation. You know, it's almost military in the sense of, we, we absolutely don't build stuff to work in a nice, calm, you know, brightly lit, uh, nicely temperature controlled lab. You know, I need it to work at two o'clock in the morning in an unfamiliar country where there's bad lighting and the weather's terrible and it's 6,000 feet up in the air and whatever. You know, do you know what I mean? We, we, we've built a lot of robustness into our system from all of those experiences. Mm. It's crazy to hear, like, it, it's such a far out idea that you've realized and you've, you've, you've delivered on, you've executed. Uh, but convincing people around you, not only your family, but your employees, that's an interesting part that I like unpicking about with people is like, how do you, how do you maintain that with the people that work around you? How, how do you get them just as invested in the end product? Because realistically, no one's going to be as invested as in the end product as the person that is actually flying the thing. Like, how do you get everyone in your team to be on board with Iron Man flying suit? You've gifted me the answer already in your question, which is that you have your whole team flying. So we, we fend off probably a dozen people a day that with the glittering records that, you know, want to come and give up everything and literally relocate their country to come and work with us because of what they see on social media. It's one thing to see it online. It's another thing to see it live. It's a whole order of magnitude more crazy to feel it and see it live. It, we used to, before COVID, have people literally run up in tears giving me or my pilots hugs with the impact we you know, have on people live. The next step is actually to be in it. And the big learning is it's really calm and gentle. It's as my 15-year-old can fly these and you look at his face really? online, you know, and some of the, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you look at his face, um, you know, from some of the shots, he's the most relaxed. He's very good at being vacant. <laughs> no, he's a typical 15-year-old, you know, not really thinking about much and just chilling out. That yeah. is the perfect mindset to fly. Getting my team all in the hot seat, as it were, and actually flying, there's no greater sales pitch as to why you should be excited about this than actually being in it. I've got two of my main engineers, you know, we've got a wider team of 20 people now, you know, core team more like 10. Two of my core engineers, they've been with me since 2017 and they just don't have any aspiration that I know of <laughs> to rush off and do anything else. I mean, one of them just came back from taking his girlfriend to Baku in Azerbaijan, doing an event for three days there, flying for the president and some, you know, big tech festival thing. Oh, I, just I, I just opened, uh, I just opened a, um, a new Pixar internal showing of a film they've been working on for four years for the head of Disney. And that came after the one, I can't say much too much about that. I've already said too much. And then that was 24 hours after flying all those military uh, demos for Sofic in the, in Tampa in Florida for SOCOM flying with, you know, fully tooled up uh, mad military expo things, you know, for the joint special forces command there. So yes, it's not hard to get my team pretty motivated and excited about what we do. You you talk in your book about daydreaming and, and thinking like a child. How important is that and, and where does that sort of come into your everyday sort of process and how, how you operate? Yeah, I'm a firm believer in this sort of whole idea that, you know, the education system and corporate existence very much does its job, does a good job of beating out of you the awkward kid in the back of the class, putting their hand up saying, but look, I know it says this in the textbook, but tell me more why, why? Because if you tell me why, I can understand the wiring and then 
better understand it and actually challenge it and say, I think there should be another page in this textbook because actually, you know, if I understand this correctly, we should go and test this, not just read what it says in the book. The problem is academia, uh, you know, built on a Victorian system of just, you know, white collar regurgitation of information. It, it is founded on follow the textbook, answer the questions in the back and get 100% well done, go home. That's not working anymore, right? All the successful people in the world are the people who don't, you know, the Elon Musk of this world, they don't have a textbook of how to build a Tesla electric car company that wipes the floor with the rest of the industry. They don't have a textbook on how to get people to Mars. And yet we have computers that are better than us by a million miles at regurgitating facts and regurgitating those textbooks. Where did we retain nearly all of us? Where did we retain? Where did we start? You know, we, we, we had this ability as a kid to mess around with Lego blocks. I have to pause for a moment and my kids are too old now, but I sort of marvel at watching little kids get entertainment out of just some little fairy tale scenario mumbling to themselves about little characters here and going in this little lego house or whatever i i feel sad that i can't re reimagine re remember the passion and excitement and exuberance of doing that because it just looks so silly and childish to an adult and yet that playful ability to pull together disparate thoughts and ideas and immerse yourself in a fantasy vr world in your head that's creativity that's what we should all be being paid to do as human beings to contribute towards all the solutions to solve the world's problems. And yet academia, you know, university, you know, school and big corporates, none of them are very good at saying, yeah, go play, go play, go experiment. Just make sure if it goes wrong, you're fine. Not going to hurt anybody. doesn't cost too much. Just keep failing along as you go. And every now and then discover stuff you didn't even know to even write down. That's what we've got to get better at. And so, yeah, it, it, the best analogy is what children do. Your dad pushed you to be creative, though, didn't he? Like you were always unpicking things and trying to rebuild things. The, the TV. I don't think you need. I don't think you needed to push me. I, I think I just was naturally inclined to look at an old TV and think, you know, well, can I just leave it the back off it and fiddle around with it, unknowingly not electrocute myself with the massive capacitors that used to exist in the back of cathode ray TVs that could have electrocuted me, but anyway, didn't. Luckily, <laughs> there's always some jeopardy involved in doing new stuff, but um. Yeah, I, I just I've always been curious. I, I, I think it's partly comes about from my school experience. You know, I'm modestly autistic, I'm modestly um, dyslexic. There we go. Uh, so being being moderately dyslexic, um, you know, my handwriting's a bit crap. My spelling's pretty rubbish. You know, I'm not, I'm not the fastest of readers, but I mean, it's tiny. You know, it was just a bit of a distraction when I was younger. But I think consequently, I never was excelling at any particular school things. I did really well in physics because I used to ask those awkward questions. And luckily, I went to a school where they'd entertain my, my curiosity. And I would build that deep knowledge behind the scenes that would allow me to answer questions. I'd be able to construct the formulas for throwing an apple up in the air, having it pause and then accelerate back down with the same energy that it started with, for instance. That's just logical to me because I'd ask the questions to construct the logic. Learning endless calculus formulas is just the worst thing in the world and i'm rubbish at that kind of thing so as a result i think i just learned that my only value was to keep asking the weird questions and build that build that long-term big picture matrix like knowledge mm. and not try and compete with the can i get nine and a half out of ten in the in the next test because i'm probably going to get seven and be sort of lost in the nowhere land um yeah i, I think I was just like that. I was just curious about the world and didn't want to follow any crowds or herds because, you know, it wasn't very exciting. Once you get, once you build the suit and, and you, you obviously need to find investment and you, you went to the US to, to demonstrate in, some, in front of some investors, didn't you? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I, 2016, March 2016, started playing with it. November 2016, 
fumbled my way to the very first flight, pretty crude, but it had a massive impact. It just looked insane. And I thought, I had a small hunch that, and I'm going to allow myself a moment to think it's nearly five years, six years from that moment. Actually, gosh, geez, my hunch was right. People do like this. (laughs) You know, millions of people around the world have now seen this. Yeah, but it's funny when you look at it and you just think there's a lot of people around me that were like, well, it's very cool and it's having a major impact. But still, what's the business? You know, there was no textbook again. Yeah. But I had a pretty strong hunch it would have an impact. And I had a sort of snifter of a feeling that military search and rescue, et cetera, could be there. But what do you do? And I, and I, and I realized that I needed to build a, build a brand. You know, what, you've got to, you, this whole boring world of like, it's not just good enough to build a product. You've got to actually go and build a brand and a feel for it. Is it Iron Man? But imagine launching a grainy film of you wobbling around a farmyard with a bunch of Heath Robinson bits of equipment attached to you and give it to the Daily Mail, right? What's that going to do for you, right? It's going to be lunatic oil trader (laughs) about to lose his job. He's trying to kill himself in a farmyard because he thinks he's Iron Man. You know, death, right? Absolute death, right? No one's going to want to know you. It's just terrible, right? Whereas if you plan it and realize you have the humility to find somebody who is from the world of, of entertainment and PR and media, which I was not. He put about £100,000 in, which is great to have some of his money to burn on boring things like patents and things like that. And between he and I, he came up with a gravity as a brand. I thought it was an amazing concept. goes above just you know some my name or flight or something like that. Um, and we launched in April, deliberately on April Fool's Day, just to confuse the hell out of people, with Wired and Red Bull. Wired and Red Bull was the two pre- preeminent brands at the time, maybe still, that represent cool tech and credible, cool human capability. You put a Red Bull helmet on, go down a mountain in a bathtub, it's suddenly cool and pushing human endurance. You do it by yourself, you're a lunatic, right? <laughs> you do anything with a Red Bull helmet on, you're awesome. Right, so we did it and it hit like a billion impressions within like 24 hours. The phone rang off the hook. Chris Anderson phoned me up to go and do TED 2017, literally with no notice on the same day as Elon Musk and the Pope. And like, what? I think you could score... Yeah, you could. He, the Pope dialed in, so it's not quite as cool oh, as that. Okay. But anyway, um, <laughs> um, but it's like you know, head exploded. Like shit, I think we actually achieved here. This was exactly the intention, especially with the British press, who the easy story to write is the dumb, stupid, mad British professor with no idea of business wasting his time. But no, the complete opposite happened, and it went crazy. So yeah. Sorry about the interruption. Coming up next week, I interview a good friend of mine, Kiwi sailor, Olympic gold medalist, ocean racer, and two-time American Cup winner, Blair Chuk. You put a silver medal from the 2012 London Olympics around my neck, and I went to the bathroom. So I was, I'm, in, I'm in a urinal, and I'm like taking a piss, and people are wanting to get their photo taken with me because they think I'm Blair Chuk. I'm like, go on then. So the first time I met you, I was in the urinal getting my photo taken, people thinking I was an Olympian. Perfect, man. I'm happy to, oh, happy to help out. That's, I guess that's the buzz, especially that was our first Olympics at that time. And when you're in that full week after party mode, um, you're happy to share the love with friends and what, you know, become good friends now. But um, yeah, friends and, and um fellow kiwis as well do you still have your medals because i was just thinking mate this guy's a lunatic he's going to lose his medal no chance he's keeping <laughs> that for long yeah amazingly um still got all three of them especially the london and the rio ones they definitely uh, saw some good party action tokyo um not so much with oh, COVID. Being, yeah covid pandemic there that was a bit bit more difficult but um yeah the first two definitely saw some some good action and even i think pete and i maybe got ours confused a couple of times to be honest of course because we were like often partying together and stuff but normally in the end we'd um 
we'd sort of put a little bit of little scratch on one or here or there so you kind of knew whose was who. That's coming up next week. Let's get back to Richard Browning. On the way to go and do TED, literally a couple of weeks after we launched, I got this out of thousands of mails. One of them just really caught my interest because in the signature box at the bottom, there was a guy with an Iron Man helmet opening and closing. It was like, that's bonkers or fun. And it was um, Adam Draper, who uh, looked like he ran some VC firm in San Francisco. He was up for paying for the deviation in flight to go San Francisco, then Vancouver. Vancouver is where the TED Talk was. Um, and uh, I went there really just thinking, I've got no expectation. I just want to test the gear before the horrendous embarrassment opportunity of not starting or falling over in front of 21 media groups at TED. Because I had to do the talk and then fly. I'd somehow agreed to this ridiculous idea. And I had oh, not God. even flown it out of the farmyard. Yeah, it's terrifying, right? I turned up at Heathrow and with all this gear, two bags, 40, 45, 47 kilos and 54 kilos, and was surprisingly told that the limit was 32 kilos. So I was literally buying suitcases at Heathrow, repacking jet engines on the floor. Nightmare. Anyway, got to San Francisco. Suddenly dawned on me, it's quite a big deal. It's a big VC firm, and there's superhero murals all over the walls. Did a very, very conservative three feet off the ground lame flight for the, all this big VC open day. And then a really tall guy rushed up to me, lost his mind, and brought with him Adam Draper, who I'd obviously got to know, Turned out this was Tim Draper, his father, and they just said it was the most epic demonstration manifestation of the superhero mentality they look for in their startup. Enormous portfolio of billion, you know, several billion dollars worth of portfolio companies. It was all dawning on me, lost sort of live. And they just said they had to be involved. Could they invest? And I just put my trader hat on quickly because I wasn't prepared for this and thought, well, okay. Uh, I think, what did I say? Something like, um, I can't remember what I said now. I ended up with a hundred dollar bill with a signed deal sheet on it. It's in the lab kind of around the corner. And they wrote me a deal. That was it. They were going to put in half a million dollars for 10%. And I haggled them to 650 because I said half a million dollars. Well, that's more like oh no, half a million pounds. I, I said, if you, if you get that to half a million pounds, that's more like $650,000. So they did it for $650,000, signed it, gave me the $100 bill. Oh. The, engines were still, the engines were still cooling. That was my very first event. And we haven't raised money since then. You still had the wingsuit on. That'll happen just bang like that. I was still wearing a suit after that very first demo and they literally did the deal there and then. Then I got on a plane and went to Ted and didn't fall over at Ted and met Adam Savage and all sorts of crazy people there and, and nailed that. And that was 198 events ago and 36 countries that we've flown in and we've generated all our own revenue since that moment. Let's let's get into the, the military stuff because I know my audience would be quite keen to hear about that. Tell me tell me about the, the work you're doing, especially with the Special Forces. Maritime soldier mobility it's uh, quite a challenge you know the only option really is is helicopters or you know or boats right whereas now we can as you can see endlessly online you can move from shore to shore ship to ship ship to shore shore to ship whichever one, one you want to do within seconds you free your hands up you do a task you can relocate on target and then you can fly away again however let me tackle the two or three challenges that always come up which um usually from people who haven't been in the military um so you can't use your hands yes correct you can't use your hands when you're climbing a caving ladder or going down a rope and you shouldn't be using your hands when you're running across a field trying to operate your weapon you should be only running across your field when you're doing it with the cover from fire because somebody else is shooting so this is the mobility leg of fire and maneuver you should only be flying when people aren't shooting at you. Now, having said all of that for SOCOM, we built a helmet-steered sidearm so you can actually lay down covering fire whilst you're flying just by looking at the target. So, I mean, that covers that off. But, you know, I don't like it because you're not supposed to be a gun platform. You're supposed to be flying when you've got cover from fire and cover from sight and then landing, then conducting your operation and then relocating. Next one is, oh, it's very loud because, yes, you go on events and you realize, yes, it's very loud. Well, guess what? If you take off from more than 500 meters away, especially obscured from sight, 
I am on that target. Any of my pilots are on that target within seconds. You can't hear it coming. It's quieter than a helicopter and you're bang straight there and nothing can prepare you for that kind of shock and awe. And even if you see that pilot, and even if they haven't put down some rounds, there's four more pilots landed behind that target. And unlike a helicopter, you can then relocate and you can self-exfil. So whether it's raiding, whether it's um, anti-ambush drills, whether it's exfilling from an OP, whether it's maritime boarding, whether it's tracking down lone gunmen in an urban environment, whether it's putting up a sniper top cover position, I'm happy to say that from the events you can see online and the ones I'm not allowed to share, every time we've turned up to a conventional tactical exercise, we've ended up somewhat ripping up the rule book on what people thought was possible. Because you can now pick up in about 15 seconds, you can be talking like this, 15 seconds later, I'm actually starting to take off and I can go anywhere within from this location at a kilometer a minute land shut down immediately do a task or even just leave them idling do a task and come back there's nothing really that can do that we're like a sort of helicopter in a backpack what are the, some of the things you know that to show us <laughs> uh it's it's doing special forces operations with uh people who didn't want to put it online <laughs> which nearly included unsurprisingly how miserable of them nearly included the dutch special uh dutch master special forces guys and nearly included the royal marines but uh, gotta love the first sea lord um uh, admiral radikin who is now the chief of event staff who just posted it anyway in, in the face of his comms team and said look it's just too cool gotta post it and that film sitting at like 20 million or something on youtube seems like every human being on the planet has seen that royal marines boarding film is that the one where they're going onto the aircraft carrier or the, the boat to boat it's an offshore patrol vessel it looks like a little little destroyer that that's all the good news i'll, I'll be very honest the bad news is that you can absolutely blow the socks off the operational guys on the ground. You can absolutely enroll the top leadership and both groups say, right, done. We've got to do this. Clearly, you just demonstrated this absolutely you know, blows out of the water all the other operational kind of processes. However, as soon as you get into the weeds with the procurement kind of community or the other myriads of layers that are required in order to actually operationalize it, turns out there's no box. There's no requirements document that was filed in 1980, whenever. I'm taking the mickey now, but there was no spreadsheet was put together where there was a list of, you know, drone technology, you know, uh, UAVs, um, you know, uh, smart landmine detection, uh, soldier situational awareness, whatever, all of these things. No one ever wrote down. I need a, I need soldiers flying around immediately be able to access anywhere in any, any weather, night or day to perform a task. No one was stupid enough to write that down. So guess what? There's no box with the bigger military. There's no box. They literally hit a brick wall and go, well, I, I, don't, I can't even procure it. I can't even, I can't even do anything. I can have you do exercises, but we're going to have to spend about two years rewriting our strategic imperative here and how we even engage with it. Uh, so there's no, there's no technically no need for it. No, no. So the, the military work off needs, you know, requirements documents. I guess it came from people going shopping, buying stuff that turned out to be useless or not required. Um, so we are progressing with half a dozen different special forces, but it's fascinating to see the ones that get stuck. Uh, and often, even the ones we're collaborating with get stuck. And then we just carry on dancing around with the others or doing search and rescue or end endless commercial events or training clients. We've got such a diverse business portfolio to an extent. We don't really care when people get stuck in their own admin like nightmare. But it's just funny to note that there's such a blockage to innovation divisions when, by definition, they predefined what in even innovation meant. The British military, they, they're looking at it, though, aren't they? Well, the Royal, the Royal Marines, because of my association, has really been at the forefront of this. I mean, I, I can't go into too much details. I think it's fair to say and probably pretty self-evident from what even they put out that this does revolutionize maritime boarding and a lot of maritime soldier mobility. There is a lot of process to go through with the British military to get it to the point where there's actually an operational capability. 
it is progressing. Ukraine has slowed down a lot of stuff because sort of all hands to the pump at the moment in the British military. You know, more of the toys have come out, dusted off and ready to go uh, than almost ever before. So, but that, like I said, in a way, it's not a problem because we are so busy with other militaries and other requirements that actually we know all the things that are coming in our development that are going to deliver even better. So in a weird way, I'm like a salesman's nightmare because I'm never willing to release the next model of the Mustang because I can just make it even better next month. Just print a new one. Yeah, but right, exactly. I, I, it's going to pay me to death when we do like injection mold, you know, a, a hundred of them. I'm going to be like, ah, you know, no, wait a month. It'll be even better. So in a way, I don't care too much. Um, you know, we want to do this and do this right. We turn down lots of different military um, procurement requests uh, because the last thing I want is just to sell a shipping container of them and find them abused or not used mm. properly. We want to learn with the militaries rather than just sell them a, you know, something they're not going to know how to use properly. So, um, but anyway, it's all going very well. I haven't actually asked you how high it can go. High as you like. Just look at that mountain exercise. I went 1.2 miles that way and 2,200 feet that way in three and a half minutes. So if I hadn't been going that way and just been going that way, I could get to that two and a half thousand feet, 2,200 feet height gain in probably... I don't know, two of the three and a half minutes that I took to do the whole mountain. See, but there's nothing, there's, nothing, there's nothing up there. I mean, why are you there? There's yeah. no military search and rescue or entertainment reason to be there, but it's a common question. Yeah. There's just massively escalating risk of problems. What's, what's, uh, what's the goal with the suit? What do you, where do you see it in the next sort of five, ten years? Is, is there any way that it could be accessible to public travel? What's the fantasy? Yeah, I, I mean, so the answer about the public kind of use of it, uh, I mean, you can pay to come and learn to fly and race with us over water and, you know, in our race series and stuff, which is pretty epic. Uh, you know, if you look at the Gravity website, gravity.co website, you can sign up to fly and we're setting up a training facility in the US, which is very cool. It's going to be entertainment, you know, learning and watching and doing events and stuff. And then these niche, me, you know, medical and military applications, some industrial ones as well. It would be a bit like taking a Formula One car to the shops, right? You know, in terms of commuting, you could, but it's just got lots of, practical reasons why it's just not the ideal tool for it then again the first motor cars were considered crazy compared to a horse and look what relentless human ingenuity has delivered and we have built an electric version it weighs twice as much as the jet suit lasts only 30 seconds but if batteries if there's a revolution in batteries which i'm sure there will be suddenly that could outcompete the jet suit and make that vision maybe less mad can you tell me about the race series that sounds awesome yeah we were due to launch it in bermuda about uh, three weeks before covid really shut the world down in 2020 uh, basically, it's our military search and rescue and private clients all gathering in, a, in an iconic waterfront location, tracing each other around inflatable pylons, having the most fun that I've ever experienced in, on this planet. Um, it, you know, it's one thing flying them. It's another thing chasing other people around. It's just epic. You know, you can literally come as close as it feels we are and then just peel away and pull up a couple of G as you ham around some pylon. It's just awesome. Sounds like so much fun. And where can people find out? You mentioned your, you've got a website. Where can people find out more about your jet suit? So, um, yeah, I mean, gravity.co um, is where you can look at, uh, you know, training facilities, you know, training opportunities or you know, inquire about events. To see what we do, I mean, take on gravity is the Instagram handle. Gravity Industries on YouTube, uh, there's endless content on there. And there's about three, 3 million people on TikTok that follow us. And that one's yet another handle because they, they asked us to change it, which is Richard M. Browning. But um, for all those TikTok enthusiasts out there. Yeah, no, you've got a great TikTok. Thank you very, very much for coming on the show, Richard. I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man, and uh, best of luck with the Gravity Jet Suit. Thanks, Andy. Thanks very much. And thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to share it with your mates, and make sure you hit the subscribe button.